when it started hitting countries that we thought, well, they have really good medical care. Why is it hitting them so hard? Then it became a realization. Welcome to episode 26 of Good is in the Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and joining me once again, Constantine Hatcher of California Yimby. That means yes in my backyard. Hey! How is Yimby doing these days with the coronavirus? A couple of things. I think we focused on kind of shifting our operations online. So, you know, an organizing oftentimes is predicated on in-person meetings and events. So now we've taken our in-person meetings and events and moved them online. The other piece of it is when we talk about housing, this pandemic has really highlighted the need for improvements in our housing policy. Folks that are housing insecure are just so, so, so in the direct hairs of this virus and, and really gonna are going to bear the brunt of pain that this is going to cause because they don't have homes. We have stay-at-home yeah. owners and people just don't, don't have places to live or they're living overcrowded conditions. This pandemic is hyper-focusing the, it's showing the, the housing crisis. Yeah. Anywhere across the country, when you're looking at the deaths caused by the coronavirus, right. it's, it's extremely disproportionately affecting African Americans. So I think it was Dr. Fauci who explained that it's because if you have a medical condition in the first place, then you're more vulnerable to the virus. And the problem is that there's a higher percentage of the African-American community that has underscoring medical issue. But the real issue is not that the, it's, it's the why we have those underlying health right. conditions. It's because we have inadequate access to health care. In black communities, we don't have enough hospitals, and the hospitals we have are underfunded and, open and serve too large a population than they can support. So when something like this happens, puts the pressure on those hospitals where they just can't service all the folks that they need to. The interview that I have here is with Dr. Tanzavati, and she said one of the scary things about it, as opposed to SARS or other viruses, is the fact that somebody can have it for so long, and right. then that means there's that opportunity to infect so many people, as opposed to other viruses like SARS, where you get it and then you're hospitalized right away. So there's right. not this period where you can go and infect a bunch of people. So that's what makes it so terrifying for the medical community. It is. It really Well, for is. everybody, actually. It's easy to kind of like let your guard down and kind of forget about, you know, to wash your hand or touch something and come in the house and not clean it off. Or, uh, do I really feel like, you know, washing off these groceries, the metals and the plastics and the, and the paper and the cardboard that I just pulled from the grocery store? It's a pain in the ass. It is. But just that, that little slip up, you could literally kill, like you could wipe out your whole family. And we're seeing that that's happened in some cases. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just... You that's just, the problem. When a person has it, then that means everybody in that household has it. Yeah. Especially if they're not hypervigilant because you're not keeping so, you know, it's like you almost have to keep social distance within your household, you know, mm -hmm. and not be all up in each other's grill piece. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's scary. It's scary stuff. It's scary stuff. It's unprecedented. This is our, this is our Spanish flu. It is. Well, this is part four in podcast in the time of coronavirus, and I don't know how much longer we'll be doing this, but maybe for a while. It's going to be for. A it's going to be for a while. So that means Constantine Hatcher, you might be um, doing more of these podcasts in the Yay. time. Yay! <laughs> okay. 
Um, on the bright side. On the bright side. Okay, so uh, for listeners, so this is part four. Uh, part one was with an ER nurse. Part two was with Rudy Salo talking about transit, the transit whisperer. And then part three was with Professor Lane at Gonzaga University talking about maybe what we could learn from the ancient Greeks and solitude. And this part four is with Dr. Tanzavati. You might remember her from the episode that Rudy Salo and I did on plastic surgery and beauty. Also, this is my first time using Zoom. Oh, yeah. It just went so smoothly. And here's the interview. Okay. Okay. I I resumed recording. Okay. Okay. All right. So, Dr. Tanzavati. Oh my lord! That's the thing we need to do just to get this to work. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, thank you for doing the podcast again. Um, yeah. You do mainly your field of plastic surgery. Is that what would be classified elective surgery? Yes, majority of what I do is elective surgery, and so how I would describe it is the majority. I would say ninety percent is elective. Actually, 100% is elective. So the word elective is kind of hard because even something that's urgent can be deemed elective, right? Okay. Because it's not emergent. Emergency is where you've got no choice. You just have to go. Whereas something that's urgent is something that can be in the guidelines when we've been deciding for cases in the surgical center, as well as at the hospital. They have these forms now that they have any surgeon when they're applying or putting in a case for surgery, we have to fill out a pretty detailed form that says, okay, why do we consider this to be an urgent case? And then there has to be some medical uh, directors who are on the, the surgery board that review it and they say, yes, we deem this to be urgent. An urgent case, an example would be a cancer case. So a melanoma case, that's where its potential for spread is high. But even then, it's not like it's an urgent where it's life and death, that's more emergent. But if you wait too long, the cancer can spread and become a problem. Another urgent might be a patient who has cancer that is in in one particular organ per se, and it has spread from its main origin and it's gone to an organ, let's say like the liver, and you have a potential to stop the spread and then at that, at that same time, it's like, what is the chance of cure for this patient? And you're starting to think, okay, I'm going to potentially prevent this person from having full care if I wait and I just wait to do it because it's not emergent. If I wait to do it, then I might pass the window where I don't have enough time anymore and it can spread from the liver to the brain or okay. to the lungs. And at that point, it's futile right? It's a stage four cancer that has really its likelihood of responding to any chemotherapy is much lower. With the onset of the coronavirus, this would have really affected your practice in a unique way as opposed to other medical practices, right? Yes. Um, Definitely for my surgical load, a majority of it is aesthetic. And then I have a small portion that's reconstructive. Mm -hmm. And aesthetic meaning that the patients are electing to do this for their physical, you know, appearance. Right. And when it comes to reconstruction, it's also physical appearance, but it's for a more visible defect that can be that can have an effect on their 
psyche, but it is definitely not urgent or emergent. It's elective again in that sense, because it can wait. It can wait until there's more time to do it, where whiskey. I want to tap into your expertise here. At what point when the news was breaking and everything was going on, did you realize this was a big deal? Because I feel like my friends in the medical field had an understanding that this was a much bigger deal than anyone else did, that everybody else was kind of behind the curve. So right. was there, do you remember a day or a moment or something that you heard or read and you thought, oh, this is much yeah. bigger? Well, the hard part of it is that even myself, I will have to say, I didn't quite understand or grasp the severity until we started seeing cases in Seattle. So when it first happened in November and December, it was lightly touched on in China. Our government kind of squashed it and said, well, we're going to close our borders. And at that time, it should have been evident that we read into what is this virus? How is it spreading? But there was also a lack of information to the whole worldwide community about the virus. We just knew some information from China and we didn't know what was true and what was false. Because mm-hmm. sometimes there's concern that a government such as China will either mask the depth of how bad it is, which we think that was the case in the beginning. And so we didn't understand how bad this virus was. But then when it started hitting Italy, we're like, okay, I think when it started hitting countries that we thought, well, they have really good medical care, why is it hitting them so hard? Then it became a realization. And then when we first started seeing the cases in Seattle, that's when I started to read up and get more information. And I was having some of my own patients asking me questions saying, should we be canceling surgery? Mm -hmm. And at the time, I didn't want to stoke any fear, right? Because saying something like that would then build up this fear with the rest of my clients. So I didn't want to do that either until I knew more information. But as I was gathering that information and before before we had a lockdown um, and before we had all these stay-at-home orders, I was getting some questions from clients and that was a wake-up call because that meant some people were already learning about this. Even though I had my own worries, they were really worried. And my duty as a, as a doctor is first to my patients and to my team, and then to my community. And so when I started hearing these concerns and the fears and reading all the information as much as I could, I was like, okay, this needs to stop with me. Because even though, you know, the government wasn't saying anything, the fact that we knew that there were so many asymptomatic carriers and that it could spread so easily, I was like, well, how do I know that any one of my patients that I'm seeing is not positive, right? It could be positive. They send it to me, they pass it to one of my team members, and then we pass it along to other patients. And the last thing I wanted was I was a source for a lot of patients getting positive. So we didn't even have any cases. We maybe had like two cases that were positive in our county. And at that point I was like, okay, let's go ahead and close. <laughs> so yeah, started closing because we, we knew that the testing was not robust yet. We didn't even have that many test kits and there were already some positive. So I knew that the numbers were probably much more than what was reported. 
So, so I decided to close. when you hear this estimate by Dr. Fauci of the best case scenario is 100,000 deaths, what do you think? What does someone in medicine think about a number like that? Because for me, it's just horrifying. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. do anything that day. When I first heard that, I had a to-do list and mm-hmm. it ended up, I cleaned. That was the only thing I could do with my head. I was... Mm-hmm. I was really, I had a real emotional reaction to that being a best case scenario. So for me as a lay person, it, I guess, just made me want to scrub everything down and clean. What mm-hmm. do you, what is going through your mind when you hear something like that? I think it's hard from the standpoint, the medical community, because we are all about data and numbers and research. And we are constantly getting new numbers and research from different countries. And it's confusing because China reports a a lower fatality rate than let's say Italy, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't even know if their numbers are correct. And then you go to South Korea and their numbers are really low. And that's because they were very strict clamping down early. So we're kind of in the middle. We weren't strict enough from the beginning, but we are starting to get more tests. So our numbers are high. If you look at how many positive tests we have compared to other countries, we far outweigh. And that's because we finally are getting enough test kits. So I think that the numbers coming out from other countries are giving us an idea of where we could be. And I do think that even though those numbers sound high and they sound like far-fetched, they're coming from adequate data. And it scares people to hear that. And from a doctor standpoint, we always have to give the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is a million. Right. The best case scenario is 100 to 200,000. And it sounds like a lot, but you also have to take into account the number of people who are in the US. It's 330 million dollars. billion, (laughs) 330 million. Mm -hmm. Um, And you take that 330 million and you say the best estimate is like a 1% mortality rate. Well, what is that going to look like then? That's, that's still high. That's 3 million. I, uh, three, 3 million. Yeah. Why is the test up the nose? (laughs) <laughs> why? why that looks so terrible i saw a diagram of it on twitter right of saying this is what it looks like and somebody had tweeted seeing that diagram has been more effective to keep me home than the stay at home orders why is it all the way up the nose and what yeah. is it to get to the throat or right well that's a good question um Thank it's you. hard because the best <laughs> the best uh <laughs> The best sample is all the way down the lungs. It's a what oh. we call bronchioalveolar lavage. You can't get that unless you have a tube down the throat. So you're never going to be able to get that sample. Yeah. But there's a lot of shedding viral load in the back of the nose. It's the same respiratory mucosa. I guess the lining is the same mucosa that lines all the way down the tract and into the lungs. So that's, you know, there are some studies that show the front of the nose can also give enough at a certain stage, but that's why we're taking it from the back of the nose. And some of the first few cases that showed a high rate of spread was from some cases that were done in a Chinese hospital. These ENT surgeons 
who were doing an endoscopic pituitary surgery where they're in the back of the nose suctioning. And we know that suctioning in the back of the nose can cause the droplets of the virus to go up into the air and that that causes the spread. And if it stays in the droplets, it can stay in the air, what we call aerosol. It can stay there for three hours. One study showed that. Whether that's true in real life, we don't know because that was a research study that was done in a lab. It wasn't done in real life. Mm -hmm. But they have found that when they checked patients' rooms in a hospital, they could find particles in the air and on the vents, ventilator, you know, the, the, the duct system, the air duct system. So it can linger. It can linger in the air. And so, you know, that that's one of the worries that I have because, you know, the CDC and the WHO want to make sure that people don't have so much fear and they've been trying to say it's not airborne, but it can linger in the air. So they've tried to put a campaign to say it's not airborne, but um, the safest way for right now, I think, is for people who don't even know if they're positive or negative is to wear a mask so that they're not spreading those droplets. And one of the things that I've noticed in the news when they're talking about the masks is they're not saying it's only to protect yourself, but it's to protect other people so that you're Mm -hmm. not injuring other people's because then somebody can walk around and say, you know, uh, the likelihood that I'll get it or just not be afraid. But Mm -hmm. what they're not thinking about is that they could be the carrier and not even realize it. Yeah. Now this might be a naive question, but in philosophy, we study you know, ethics, moral theory, concept Mm -hmm. of right and wrong, and medical ethics is part of it. Um, We have these questions about triage, about if there's only so many people who can be helped, how do you make the decision of who gets helped with limited resources? Mm -hmm. Does a case like this, a virus like this ever come up in med school? Like, or or does it ever, (laughs) does it ever come up where you're thinking, okay, there's a virus that's spreading like crazy. It can last Mm -hmm. for a long time. Uh, yeah. Well, here, what I, do you think, do? I think the Ebola virus is what scared me the most. This was like several years ago. And when there was a big outbreak there in, in Africa, it was scary because we have concerns that if it spreads to a more populated area here in the U.S., it would be very devastating. And so um, I, you know, these are things that scare us. Particularly, there was also MERS that was way back, also the Middle Eastern respiratory uh, virus. And that one was even more deadly than SARS, even more deadly than this coronavirus, um, COVID-19. So it, those are all concerns that we have that, that there was going to be another virus like that. We certainly were looking into it. There were researchers trying to, you know, develop a vaccine to the first coronavirus, the SARS virus, um, but we never got far enough because then people lost interest and there was a lag down. But it's very true that we've been seeing these viruses show up again, you know, these very deadly viruses. Every decade or so, you get this really bad virus. And it can spread. You know, the last big one was the 1918 flu epidemic, the Spanish flu. And, you know, we haven't had a big one until SARS came about in 2003. 
and there was this huge lag. And so, um, and that's because we've done a lot of great work in terms of vaccines for both polio, smallpox, measles, you know, there's all these vaccines that we have now that's really helped us. But the more that we are, and I'm sure this is an argument that you see people talking about, the argument is that we're encroaching on animals, their living spaces, we're um, causing a lot of diversity, the biodiversity to go away, and that's causing these viruses to easily jump from animals who are stressed to us. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when it comes to a vaccine, what would a vaccine look like? Would it be something that you did regularly, like a flu shot? Or is it something that would be given when you're a child? So for this vaccine, it would be similar to the flu vaccine. That so would be getting it regularly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that is if we think that the coronavirus then has a different strain. Um, remember that the SARS-CoV, as the CV one, should I say, that's the first one, the SARS version one that was in 2003, has a little bit of a difference. It's very, it's similar in that it presents with acute respiratory distress in the same thing with this recent coronavirus. So it presents very similarly, but its spread is different because with that one, they were so severe that they went into the hospital and didn't have enough time to spread it to other people. Whereas this one- there's a long phase where they could be asymptomatic and you could also have people who don't have any symptoms. Right. Whereas the original SARS virus in 2003 hit people really hard and really fast and they went to the hospital. And were so sick. it couldn't spread because, okay, well, um, I have a question about clarification with packages. When I get something from Amazon, I'm ordering more things from Amazon lately. <laughs> do I have to keep the boxes outside or what do I do? Or plastic bags from the grocery store? So that's a good question. Um, the plastic itself, you know, we, we know that things will stay on the surface. For instance, like the cardboard, the safest is always to add 72 hours. Even like the mask that we're reusing or repurposing, we will, because there's been a shortage of, of masks, one of the techniques we're using to repurpose them is to not use it for 72 hours. So the safest bet, if you have an inert structure, is to leave it out for 72 hours if you can. So if you have a package that's delivered, one thing you can do is you grab the package, you bring it inside to, you know, like the garage or something. So it's not sitting out there, somebody can steal it. (laughs) You don't want to do that. But you take it, you bring it inside, then you wash your hands, and you let it sit where it's at for 72 hours, and then you can open it, unless you have something that's perishable. Okay. You have to figure that. So that's how I'm cleaning my uh, groceries. I know some people will say it's overkill, but the best way to help with this virus is when I bring in the food, I, put, I pull the stuff out of the, the bag, I set it on the counter, and I spray it down with Lysol. So I get a good wipe, and I wipe it all down first, And then I move it to a clean side. So there's the dirty side and there's the clean side. Uh, And then the plastic bags get get thrown away. And meanwhile, this whole time then when I'm done, I wash my hands very well. Okay. What does the end of this look like? I think it's going to change how we just approach sterility. Like, 
you know, doctors have been doing this for a long time, is staying sterile. Uh, surgeons, when we go into the operating room, we're scrubbing so much, we're washing our hands all the time. And uh, part of it is that people didn't even know how long they were supposed to wash their hands, right? How long to scrub, how to wash their hands properly. And so now I think this is a teaching moment on how to stay as clean as possible and not prevent disease. But you know, these viruses and, and bacteria, they weren't a big part of life way back when in history because we didn't live in such confined spaces and so close to each other. You know, communities were only like a hundred people each. So we didn't have big cities and towns and things like that. Um, and that's why I think it's just so prevalent now because we are in such a community where you can travel easily from one part of the world to the other and spread this like crazy. I think something that surprised me because I've been inside because of maternity leave. So I haven't, I've just been consuming the news, but my understanding of it has been really different from everybody else's because I'm not interacting with it. And right. I finally did have a chance. I decided I, I, I had an opportunity, some free time. I wanted to go for a run. So mm -hmm. I went to the Rose Bowl to the 5K track <laughs> and it was closed and there were two cop cars there. And I think that's when it really hit me. I started seeing what everybody else was seeing. Yeah. It, it just feels so bizarre. And I ordered groceries online and the person delivered, rang the doorbell, stood back. I had a couple bottles of wine with the delivery. Don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should. They should be giving away yes. essentials right now. Um, but because of that, he needed to see my ID. So it was just bizarre for me to see him with the mask standing back, my arm outstretched, his arm outstretched, <laughs> he's got gloves on, Six trying feet. to see my age. Yeah. yeah. And then from, from a distance and then say goodbye. And I thought, my goodness, because by the end of this, Every American is going to be impacted in some way. Everyone will know somebody who's lost a job or mm -hmm. who has been sick as a result of this. I don't right. know if any American can be untouched by this virus. Yeah, no, I don't think um, all of us will have known somebody who's been sick. It definitely will. The other part of it is, you know, how many jobs we've lost so far. Our hope is that, you know, this will come back to some normalcy, but I do think that it is going to be a lasting effect. I mean, we're going to probably look at this in 10, 20 years, look back on it in terms of history and go, wow, that was, it really changed how we approach life. Yeah. Hopefully in a good way too. Well, yeah. I mean, it'll be nice to know what are the, what are the lessons mm -hmm. other than uh, washing our hands longer? <laughs> <laughs> I do think one of the things that was on the verge, which, you know, a lot of people were going towards as much working from home right. uh, as much as possible in terms of the companies, people were allowing them, companies were allowing people to work from home more and more. And this is just the last impetus to say, yes, go work from home. And even like we were talking about, uh, I think in your previous podcast, you guys were talking about just travel, right? With cars oh, yeah. and stuff and Metro instead of taking the subways or taking your public transportation switching to driving or even not, maybe not even driving because you're working from home. Right. There was a, a podcast episode of Freakonomics that talked about the impact that people no longer commuting right now, that when it's all over, they might decide, hey, why am I commuting? 
if I mm-hmm. don't have to. I mean, that right. shaves off an hour of their day. Why bother if you can work from home? And it could even open up job possibilities for people with disabilities. Right. Definitely. The other thing I see is maybe, you know, in Los Angeles where there's traffic everywhere, people might consider moving to a close place to where they work. And so instead of having a place in the suburbs, they'll decide, you know what, I don't mind living in the city and living so close to work that I can just walk there or, you know, just drive a short distance. And I think people might, I don't know, with their families and everything, everybody being quarantined together, they might have a bit more appreciation for putting pause on their busy Mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. Because that's the thing is that we're finding out what we're made of right Mm now. Yeah. Because all of the other stuff is, is put to the side. So now it's, it's, everything's about relationships right now. Yep. And particularly (laughs) Zoom, I would say. Zoom's probably been doing a really good job. Uh, yes. They've been getting a lot of people on here. Um, I was seeing the other day, I was seeing Oprah Winfrey and she was doing a, you know, a, a, a session where she was talking to somebody in Italy using Zoom and this was going on as a series that she's sharing. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And that was on, um, I think it was on Apple TV. Oh, so it's well, funny how like we're, we're connecting with each other those ways. And, and I was telling you earlier about house party. My mm-hmm. sister was, uh, she introduced me to it. So she invited me and it's an app on your phone where you play games with each other, but you don't have to be physically playing games. You're on this phone and playing games with each other from afar and mm-hmm. seeing each other. So you can do activities together. So yeah, it's a different landscape for sure. Well, you started your IG live videos. Is that something that you started because of this or were you going to be doing that? You know, I had always thought about putting consistent content to connect with my viewers, to connect with people just so that they had some information. And even more so with the coronavirus, I think there were so many fears and I thought, well, what better way? I found a lot of people have enjoyed content where we talk about the coronavirus, how it's hurt us in terms of our practices, but how we're coping. It just shows us our human side, you know, as doctors and how we feel about our fellow colleagues being exposed and and on the front line. And just sharing some of our knowledge and experience helps people understand, you know, why it's important to wear a mask, why it's important to wash your hands, all these little things. And I think it helps uh, allay some fears. So it's, I think it's been good. Well, some of the nurses, I've seen photos of a bruise at the bridge of their nose from wearing the mask for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're really, they're like the nurses and doctors, they're like soldiers. What is that mentality? Because I don't know that I would have that same, I wouldn't, there's no way, there's no way. I know, let's be honest, I'm like, no, I, I just, I don't think that if my life were at stake, that yeah. I would still go to, if my job could cost me my life. Right. Um, but then again, I don't have that mentality. I wouldn't go into that in the first place. Right. Well, I, I had this discussion earlier with a colleague today on IG Live. She's a mother and she's pregnant. She's six months pregnant. And she's like, I don't know what the research shows. And do I expose myself while I'm pregnant and out in this community with being possibly getting positive and getting sick? Um, I have another colleague who's in the thick of it in New York and, you know, there's a call for healthcare workers because there's a need, uh, there's a lack. And so her background is ENT facial plastics. 
but they don't need ENT. They need critical care doctors. And of course, we have some knowledge, but not enough to take care of the critically ill on ventilators, but we can help. So she volunteered, you know, they were asking for volunteers. So she volunteered. She doesn't have a family, but it's still that concern of even some people who've been young have gotten sick and died. Mm -hmm. So there's always still that concern for us. And I think part of it has to do with our duty. We went into medicine and we have this strong sort of ethical and moral code. There's something that we have to, uh, it's, it's our oath that we call the Hippocratic Oath that we read when we get our white coat ceremony. And um, there's also, you know how you were talking about how it feels like you're in the army or something like that, uh, that it seems like they're in the army. Well, when we go through residency, you know when you're going through a period where you don't have a lot of sleep, you're tired all the time, you're working so hard, the people you're with, your, your fellow residents that you spend that time with, they're not only your friends, they're like, like fellow army members, like as if we went into war together, because we spend every waking moment that we're awake mm -hmm. with each other, helping each other. And so it becomes such a moment where you remember, because when people have said that they feel this connection, it's, it's when you've served a bigger purpose, and you spent all your waking moment together. Right. So that's why it feels, you know, so strong when I hear about my colleagues on the front line. I feel for them. I feel this sort of pull to help them because we yeah. feel like we're in it with them, you know, so. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I'm wondering if these professions, like the ER doctors and nurses, if anyone will ever look at those professions the same after this. I don't, I don't think so. I think yeah. it'll be different. I well, hope that there's more appreciation for doctors and nurses alike. Yeah. I mean, they're, the ris yeah, they're risking their lives. Yeah. Um, well, let's end on, mm -hmm. on a higher note. So I know that <laughs> sure. you are, I know that you are a bookworm. Do you have anything to recommend for, <laughs> for quarantine reading or oh what are you reading God. now? Um, I'm so deep into this book. It's called all the eyes um, all the eyes that cannot see or something like that. Is it that. all the light? All the light. Yes, yes. yes. All the oh, light you cannot see. Yeah. And then by Anthony Dewar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so I know it's a Pulitzer Prize book and I've just been just devouring that book. I'm almost at the end. Last uh -huh. night I was up to like 1230. I was like, Oh my God, this is way past my bedtime. Oh, but those I are the best so reads. Yes. Uh, it's such a good book and it's, it kind of gives you a perspective too, because that in itself is war, right? These it's entrenched in war. And it kind of reminds me essentially like what we're dealing with right now, you yeah. know, staying indoors as much as possible and trying to protect your fellow, you know, members, your community members. And I love bad blood that you recommended. Oh yes. That book was, I could not put down either. And that was done in like two days. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. Yeah. And I'm happy to be here and help give some, hopefully some positive message. I think I want to, I guess, say if anything that comes out of this, that I hope that people are, you know, we're already seeing it. People are doing things that are a sacrifice for one another, helping each other, helping their community, stepping up to see if people need help, need help with their groceries. I think those are such uh, important things that 
we should continue to be doing <laughs> hopefully yeah. after this as well. But yeah, we've been seeing, I've been seeing a lot of kindness from strangers. So yeah. And there's this boost in creativity as well. I think that's been very nice to see. It's been the other side of the daunting news. Then you mm-hmm. see, like you say, the kindness, and then also a lot of creativity and humor in mm-hmm. these quarantine videos that people are cranking out. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to see more comedy shows and some humorous stuff at night to try to keep positive, you know, instead of drowning oh, like all the negative news. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're in it in a unique way because you also, you have your own business. So you're mm-hmm. feeling this in two ways, just one as somebody who is in medicine and then also as a business owner. I think that's, I didn't know that it was going to hurt me in terms of, not hurt me, sorry, I was going to get so emotional about it because, you know, I have a duty to my patients, but secondly, to my team. And it was very hard to think that I had to lay them off. A temporary, it's a temporary layoff, you know, because yeah. I, I definitely want to bring them back. It's just that the business is bleeding, right? And having to manage the finances of the business to make sure that we're able to open back up again, but also making sure that my employees are taken care of, that they have the money to pay for their bills. They're worried about rent. They're worried about food. They're worried about whether unemployment is going to give them enough money to pay for things. And I had to balance the the concern that my employees had with, you know, what was good also for the business. And we had to do some calculations. We had to see it from the number standpoint. Okay, are they going to still get enough? If not, do we need to supplement? And so for two weeks, we decided to pay them without any work, uh, just to make sure to carry them over. There's a lot of people who are going to be out of work, but my hope is that it's temporary that all of us are going to come back, particularly because I hope with like my business, I'm hoping that I'm bringing them back and that it will also be a continuous cycle that other people will do the same and it will continue to flourish and grow back to where we were. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I think is really cool is people have been giving shout outs to small business Mm -hmm. And, you know, to take that, that's part of the acts of kindness. You know, people are looking out for each other, um, recognizing that their friends, their community are business owners and trying to give a nod to all of them. Yeah. I think in this time, I think we realize that we can't just do alone. You know, it's more about relationships and helping other people, not just, you know, just this immediate around you, because the more we can help each other, the more we'll be able to get out of this together. Right. Well, Dr. Tanzavati, how can people get in touch with you? What is your your Instagram account so that people can see your... Are you doing it at three o'clock every day? A yes. live IG? Okay, cool. All uh, right. Three o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And so my Instagram handle is at Faces by DRT. And that's my Facebook as well as Twitter. And then my YouTube channel is Faces by DRT1. And yeah, and you can find me on all those channels. I go live on Instagram at three every day, weekday, Monday to Friday, uh, and then Saturday, Sunday, I get a rest there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thank you for teaching me Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. All right. I'm I'm glad that I was able to teach you one thing and now (laughs) hopefully this will go forward. (laughs) It's awesome. It's awesome. Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. So I want to give a shout out to patrons of the show, Dorothy, Ellen, Randy, thank you so much. And for anyone else, if you're enjoying the content, please leave a rating or review. Or you can become a patron for as little as two bucks at patreon.com slash good is in the details. And I also wanted to give a shout out to hairdressers. Constantine, are you missing your barber? Oh my God. <laughs> so I want Shit's to... getting real over here, Blaine. <laughs> Shit is getting real. My son, I did a FaceTime with my uh, sons the other day and they were clowning me so bad. It was, I, I'm not even going to repeat the jokes. It was actually hilarious and they kind of get it for me. So damn it. <laughs> well, I think um, our Zoom meetings are eventually, we're all going to be wearing hats for them. But I wanted to give a shout out, especially thinking about small business. I mean, we're thinking about a lot of people, nurses, doctors, first responders, people in the grocery store. So I want to give shout outs to different people. And this time I asked for people to say, hey, let me know the name of your hairdresser and I will give them a mention at the end of the show. So are you ready? Oh, hey, who's your barber? I go to Fresh Cuts over there on Jefferson and Crenshaw. Okay. Well, my hairdresser is April at Dave Salon and Sherman Oaks. So other shout outs. Kara Shaw at My Salon Bay in Calabasas. Joanne Persephone at The Style Witch in Seattle. Julie at Die to Style in San Diego. Sergio at Salon Chante in Fullerton. Patty at Bauhaus in Orange. Lauren White. Ooh, she's at Pendulum. She works out there. Lauren, <laughs> Lauren White, she does a lot of, she does everyone's hair there. Okay, Lauren White at Lock and Crown in Pasadena. And TJ Brown at Spring Valley Barbershop in Houston. Woo! Thank you. Hairstylists, we miss you. If you need one, if you're in any of these cities, now you know where to go. After the pandemic. And After the pandemic, when it's all done. No going to the hairdresser right Everyone's now. Everyone's going to, to the out. hairdresser. Like Although these. I feel, I mean, again, it's another group of folks that you just really feel for because they are taking a huge L right now. Oh, yeah. For the next pod, I want to give a shout out to other people that we're missing in our life. There's a lot of parents that are now homeschooling. So if there is a particular teacher that you're learning that you're really thankful for, you want to give a shout out to a teacher, you can email me at goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. And we'll also do it for our fitness trainers, our instructors, our gyms. We're missing you as well. I'm definitely missing Pendulum and I'm excited to get back. So email me, goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com, and we'll give shout-outs to teachers, trainers, fitness instructors. We miss you. Drone master trainer. That's my brother. <laughs> yeah, for he's a next master week. trainer. He, he's struggling. He's struggling out there, but he's still, you know, trying to keep people in shape. Yeah, well, a lot of people are doing Instagram stories mm-hmm. and stuff where they're still having people out. Okay. All right, well, that's the next profession. So just as a reminder, stay inside, wash your hands, stop hoarding the toilet paper, and there will be a part five of a podcast in the time of coronavirus. It's going to be a part 15 <laughs> of podcasting <laughs> coronavirus where we're going right now. Because something miraculous happens. Okay, bye. Bye.